Section 17 of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Luke Sartor. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Albert Hubbard. Walt Whitman, Part 2. It was in August of 1883 that I first walked up that little street, a hot, sultry summer evening. There had been a shower that turned the dust of the unpaved roadway to mud. The air was close and muggy. The houses, built right up to the sidewalks, over which in little gutters the steaming sewage ran, seemed to have discharged their occupants into the street to enjoy the cool of the day. Barefooted children by the score paddled in the mud. All the steps were filled with loungers. Some of the men had discarded not only coats, but shirts as well, and now sat in flaming red underwear, holding babies. They say that woman's work is never done. But to the women of Mickle Street, this does not apply. But stay, perhaps their work is never done. Anyway, I remember that women sat on the curbs in calico dresses, or leaned out of the windows, and all seemed supremely free from care. "'Can you tell me where Mr. Whitman lives?' I asked a portly dame who was resting her elbows on a window-sill. "'Who?' "'Mr. Whitman.' "'You mean Walt Whitman?' "'Yes.' "'Show the gentleman, Molly. He'll give you a nickel, I'm sure.' I had not seen Molly. She stood behind me, but as her mother spoke, she seized tight hold of one of my fingers, claiming me as her lawful prey, and all the other children looked on with envious eyes as little Molly threw at them glances of scorn and marched me off. Molly was five, going on six, she told me. She had bright red hair, a grimy face, and little chapped feet that made it not a sound as we walked. She got her nickel and carried it in her mouth, and this made conversation difficult. After going one block, she suddenly stopped, squared me around, and pointing, said, "'Dem is he!' and disappeared. In a wheeled rattan chair in the hallway, a little back from the door of a plain, weather-beaten house, sat the coatless philosopher, his face and head wreathed, in a tumult of snow-white hair. I had a little speech, all prepared weeks before and committed to memory, that I intended to repeat, telling him how I had read his poems and admired them. And further, I had stored away in my mind a few blades from Leaves of Grass, that I purposed to bring out at the right time as a sort of certificate of character. But when that little girl jerked me right about face and heartlessly deserted me, I stared dumbly at the man whom I had come a hundred miles to see. I began angling for my little speech, but could not fetch it. Hello, called the philosopher out of the white aureole. Hello, come here, boy. He held out his hand, and as I took it, there was a grasp with meaning in it. Don't go yet, Joe, he said to a man seated on the step 
smoking a cob pipe. "'The old woman's calling me,' said the swarthy Joe. Joe evidently held truth lightly. "'So long, Walt.' "'Good-bye, Joe.' "'Sit down, lad, sit down.' I sat in the doorway at his feet. "'Now, isn't it queer?' That fellow is a regular philosopher and works out some great problems, but he's ashamed to express them. He could no more give you his best than he could fly. Ashamed, I suppose, ashamed of the best that is in him. We're all a little that way. All but me. I try to write my best, regardless of whether the thing sounds ridiculous or not, regardless of what others think or say or have said. Ashamed of our holiest, truest, and best. Is it not too bad? You are twenty-five now. Well, boy, you may grow until you are thirty, and then you will be as wise as you ever will be. Haven't you noticed that men of sixty have no clearer vision than men of forty? One reason is that we have been taught that we know all about life and death and the mysteries of the grave, but the main reason is that we are ashamed to shove out and be ourselves. Jesus expressed his own individuality perhaps more than any other man we know of, and so he wields a wider influence than any other. And this, though we only have a record of just twenty-seven days of his life, now that fellow that just left is an engineer, and he dreams some beautiful dreams, but he never expresses them to anyone only hints them to me, and this only at twilight. He's like a weasel or a mink or a whippoorwill. He comes out only at night. If the weather was like this all the time, people would never learn to read and write, said Joe to me, just as you arrived. And isn't that so? Here we can count a hundred people up and down this street, and not one is reading. Not one but that is just lolling about, except the children, and they are happy only when playing in the dirt. Why, if this tropical weather should continue, we would all slip back into South Sea Islanders. You can raise good men only in a little strip around the North Temperate Zone. When you get out of the track of a glacier, a tender-hearted, sympathetic man of brains is an accident. Then the old man suddenly ceased, and I imagined that he was following the thought out in his own mind. We sat silent for a space. The twilight fell, and a lamplighter lit the street lamp on the corner. He stopped an instant to salute the poet cheerily as he passed. The man sitting on the doorstep, across the street, smoking, knocked the ashes out of his pipe on his boot heel and went indoors. Women called their children, who did not respond, but still played on. Then the creepers were carried in, to be fed their bread and milk, and put to bed. And, shortly, shrill feminine voices ordered the other children indoors, and some obeyed. The night crept slowly on. I heard old Walt chuckle behind me, talking incoherently to himself. And then he said, you are wondering why I live in such a place as this. Yes, that is exactly what I was thinking of. You think I belong in the country, in some quiet, shady place. 
but all I have to do is to shut my eyes and go there. No man loves the woods more than I. I was born within sound of the sea, down on Long Island, and I know all the songs that the seashell sings. But this babble and babble of voices pleases me better, especially since my legs went on a strike, for although I can't walk, you see, I can still mix with the throng, so I suffer no loss. In the woods a man must be all hands and feet. I like the folks, the plain, ignorant, unpretentious folks, and the youngsters that come and slide on my cellar door do not disturb me a bit. I'm different from Carlyle. You know he had a noise-proof room where he locked himself in. Now, when a huckster goes by, crying his wares, I open the blinds and often wrangle with the fellow over the price of things. But the rogues have got into a way lately of leaving truck for me and refusing pay. Today an Irishman passed in three quarts of berries and walked off, pretending to be mad because I offered to pay. When he was gone, I beckoned to the babies over the way. They came over and we had a feast. Yes, I like the folks around here. I like the women, and I like the men, and I like the babies, and I like the youngsters that play in the alley and make mud pies on my steps. I expect to stay here until I die. You speak of death as a matter of course. You are not afraid to die? Oh no, my boy. Death is as natural as life, and a deal kinder. But it is all good. I accept it all and give thanks. You have not forgotten my chant to death? Not I. I repeated a few lines from Drum Taps. He followed me, rapping gently with his cane on the floor, and with little interjectory remarks of, That's so! Very true! Good, good! And when I faltered and lost the lines, he picked them up where the voice of my spirit tallied the song of the bird. In a strong, clear voice, but a voice full of sublime feeling, he repeated those immortal lines, beginning, Come, lovely and soothing death. Come, lovely and soothing death, undulate round the world, serenely arriving, arriving, in the day, in the night, to all, to each, sooner or later, delicate death. Praised be the fathomless universe, for life and joy, and for objects and knowledge curious, and for love, sweet love, but praise, 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 for the sure and winding arms of cool and folding death. Dark mother, always gliding near with soft feet, have none chanted for thee a chant of fullest welcome? Then I chant for thee, I glory thee above all. I bring thee a song that when thou must indeed come, come unfalteringly. Approach, strong deliveress. When it is so, when thou hast taken them, I joyously sing the death. Lost in the loving floating ocean of thee, Laved in the flood of thy bliss, O death, From me to thee glad serenades, Dances for thee I propose, Saluting thee 
adornments and feastings for thee and the sights of the open landscape and the high-spread sky are fitting and life in the fields and the huge and thoughtful night the night in silence under many a star the ocean shore and the husky whispering wave whose voice i know and the soul turning to thee o vast and well-veiled death and the body gratefully nestling close to thee over the treetops i float thee a song over the rising and sinking waves over the myriad fields and the prairies wide over the dense packed cities all and the teeming wharves and ways i float this carol with joy with joy to thee o death the last playing youngster had silently disappeared from the streets the doorsteps were deserted save where across the way a young man and maiden sat in the gloaming conversing in low monotone the clouds had drifted away a great yellow star shone out above the chimney tops in the east i arose to go i wish you'd come oftener i see you so seldom lad said the old man half plaintively i did not explain that we had never met before that i had come from new york purposely to see him he thought he knew me and so he did as much as i could impart the rest was irrelevant as to my occupation or name what booted it he had no curiosity concerning me i grasped his outstretched hand in both of my own he said not a word neither did i i turned and made my way to the ferry past the whispering lovers on the doorsteps and over the railway tracks where the noisy engines puffed as i walked on board the boat the wind blew up cool and fresh from the west the star in the east grew brighter and other stars came out reflecting themselves like gems in the dark blue of the delaware there was a soft sublimity in the sound of the bells that came echoing over the waters my heart was very full for i had felt the thrill of being in the presence of a great and loving soul it was the first time and the last that i ever saw walt whitman a good many writers bear no message they carry no torch sometimes they excite wonder or they amuse and divert divert us from our work to be diverted to a certain degree may be well but there is a point where earth ends and cloudland begins and even great poets occasionally befog the things they would reveal homer was seemingly blind to much simple truth virgil carries you away from earth horace was undone without his massinas dante makes you an exile shakespeare was singularly silent concerning the doubts difficulties and common lives of common people byron's corsair life does not help you in your toil and in his fight with english bards and scotch reviewers we crave neutrality to be caught in the meshes of popes dunciad is not pleasant and lowell's 
fable for critics, is only another Dunciad. But above all other poets who have ever lived, the author of Leaves of Grass was the poet of humanity. Milton knew all about heaven, and Dante conducts us through hell. But it was left for Whitman to show us earth. His voice never goes so high that it breaks into an impotent falsetto. Neither does it growl and snarl at things it does not understand, and not understanding does not like. He was so great that he had no envy, and his insight was so sure that he had no prejudice. He never boasted that he was higher, nor claimed to be less than any of the other sons of men. He met all on terms of absolute equality, mixing with the poor, the lowly, the fallen, the oppressed, the cultured, the rich, simply as brother with brother. And when he said to an outcast, Not till the sun excludes you will I exclude you, he voiced a sentiment worthy of a god. He was brother to the elements, the mountains, the seas, the clouds, the sky. He loved them all, and partook of them all in his large, free, unselfish, untrammeled nature. His heart knew no limits, and filling his feet mortised in granite, and his footsteps tannined in infinity, he knew the amplitude of time. Only the great are generous, only the strong are forgiving. Like Lot's wife, most poets look back over their shoulders, and those who are not looking backward insist that we shall look into the future, and the vast majority of the whole scribbling rabble accept the precept, man never is, but always to be blessed. We grieve for childhood's happy days, and long for sweet rest in heaven, and sigh for mansions in the skies. And the people about us seem so indifferent, and our friends so lukewarm, and really no one understands us, and our environment queers our budding spirituality, and the frost of jealousy nips our aspirations. O oh, paradise, O oh, paradise, the world is growing old. Who would not be at rest and free, where love is never cold? So sing the fearsome dyspeptics of the stylus. O oh, anemic he, you bloodless she, nipping at crackers, sipping at tea, why not consider that, although evolutionists tell us where we came from, and theologists inform us where we are going to, yet the only thing we are really sure of is that we are here. The present is the perpetually moving spot where history ends and prophecy begins. It is our only possession, the past we reach through lapsing memory, halting recollection, hearsay and belief. We pierce the future by wistful faith or anxious hope, but the present is beneath our feet. Whitman sings the beauty and the glory of the present. He rebukes our groans and sighs, bids us look about on every side at the wonders of creation and at the miracles within our grasp. 
he lifts us up restores us to our own introduces us to man and to nature and thus infuses into us courage manly pride self-reliance and the strong faith that comes when we feel our kinship with god he was so mixed with the universe that his voice took on the sway of elemental integrity and candor absolutely honest this man was unafraid and unashamed for nature has neither apprehension shame nor vainglory in leaves of grass whitman speaks as all men have ever spoken who believe in god and in themselves oracular without apology or abasement fearlessly he tells of the powers and mysteries that pervade and guide all life all death all purpose his work is masculine as the sun is masculine for the prophetic voice is as surely masculine as the lullaby and lyric cry are feminine whitman brings the warmth of the sun to the buds of the earth so that they open and bring forth form color perfume he becomes for them aliment and dew so these buds become blossoms fruits tall branches and stately trees that cast refreshing shadows there are men who are to other men as the shadow of a mighty rock in a weary land such is walt whitman end of walt whitman part two recording by luke sartor brisbane queensland